Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for who you are and how kind you are to us. Father, not only have you taken us and brought us out of darkness and into light, you've taken us out of spiritual orphanages because of our own rebellion and sin and brought us into families. And that family is the church. And the church is a place, um, a people, a community uh, where we are to seek the well-being of one another uh, through the gospel, uh, to seek to minister to and love one another in, uh, in your word and as you've instructed. And so as we uh, look at the church today and over the weeks ahead, we pray that your blessing would rest upon us and you would give the men and women in this class who are seeking wisdom about a church home, you would give them discernment about whether this might be uh, the church home to which you are calling them. Father, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're here, you understand we're uh, doing what's called our inquirers class. We do this once or twice a year as, as, uh, as needed for folks who just want to find out more about the church. We have folks who uh, are taking this potentially as church members. Some are taking it just to find out more and, and learn more about who we are. Some of you have been members here for years and are taking this again or for the third or fourth time even. Uh, and so it's a fun class. It's always a great privilege for me. I've said last week, this is really the time where I feel like I become the pastor uh, for new people. And so I, uh, there's a lot of things in the church that I'm willing to, to delegate out. But this class is really something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, let me talk for a minute about something we started into last week, and it's the idea of church membership. And I asked you to read an article, uh, for those of you that were here last week, to read an article uh, on the necessity of church membership. Um, we, we say that against the backdrop of a world that holds church membership in very low esteem. I, I think I mentioned last week one of the biggest churches in the southeast does not practice church membership at all. Uh, and I can see certain things that are attractive about that. But I also, as a pastor, as someone who, per Romans, uh, I mean, Hebrews 13, has been charged that I will one day give account for those under my care, I want to know who's under my care. And you ought to know under whose care you are uh, and whose leadership and accountability uh, you're under. And so church membership is vital for a number of reasons. And, and I'm glad to talk more with you about that. If you're struggling with that concept, please talk to me. I want to talk for a minute just about what's on page 14, how to join First Scots. We are what's called a PCA church. Uh, and so I just want to lay out what that process is. If you are considering church membership and you're wondering, um, let me dispel one question maybe that you have right now. And that is, do I have to believe every single thing, every single jot and tittle that First Scots believes, that Alex believes to be a member here? Um, we would say no. We would actually say that the doors of the church are as wide as the gates of heaven. So if somebody is a sincere believer, seeking Christ, living by faith, repenting of sin, and simply desires to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and will seek the peace and purity of the church, then they ought to be members here if this is where the Lord's calling them. Uh, and so do you have to agree with us on baptism? You know, I'd love for you to. Do you have to agree with us on uh, exactly what we believe about the Lord's Supper? I'd love for you to. We wouldn't believe it if we didn't think it was right. But do we have some variety and diversity within the church about what we believe about these things? Certainly, we do. 
Uh, we are not monolithic. It may feel like it if you're new to this church. It may feel like, wow, everybody here, you know, believes all the same stuff. Well, that's really not true when it comes to the secondary things. When it comes to the primary things, yes, we need to believe the same stuff, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, that the scripture is the word of God, uh, that the church is the bride of Christ, those things. Uh, And so there are essentials that we all have to be in agreement about, but the secondary things, there is diversity within this church. And so I want you to understand that as you're walking through this class and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure if I agree with, with uh, infant baptism. I'm not sure what I believe about uh, the Lord's presence and the Lord's Supper. You know, there's a, a spectrum of views on that. And you'll hear in a few classes what we believe about that. As you're wrestling with these things, if you're wondering, do I have to agree with every jot and tittle of these things? The answer is no. Now, the one disclaimer is to be a leader, to be an officer in the church, you do have to subscribe to those things because we are a church that is under the authority of a confessional statement. I love that because you can go online. You can go online. You can go on our website or you can just look up Westminster Confession of Faith and it's going to tell you everything we believe. Now, we don't believe it because that's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. It's not that we said, all right, I want to be Presbyterian, so let me go subscribe to everything that the Westminster Confession says. We agree with that because we believe it's a reflection of what the Bible teaches. Okay, so in other words, We don't hold to the confession of faith as our ultimate authority. We hold to scripture as our ultimate authority. And we believe, that's why I'm Presbyterian. I wasn't raised Presbyterian. I came to these convictions by studying the scriptures. So I am, I believe the Westminster Confession is right, not because it's the highest authority, but because I think it rightly reflects what the scriptures teach. So if you're wrestling through that, Talk to me. You do not have to believe every jot and tittle to be a member of the church. Truly put, you just need to be in, in Christ and seeking the health and well-being of the church. How do you join the church? Well, ultimately, you're going to take vows, and I want to go over these vows quickly. The first is, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope except for his sovereign mercy? Somebody paraphrase that for me. What's it asking? Yeah. Good. By the way, these are listed on page 14 under section four, uh, the five vows of membership. You know, that first one's saying, if it is up to my good works, there is only one possible result, and that is I will be under the judgment of God for all eternity. Second, Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? And by the way, that is exclusive language. He's not one among many. He is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. So he's not one way. You sometimes hear that, that all all streams lead to the same river, all paths lead to the same mountaintop. No, we are exclusively saying Jesus Christ alone is able to deal with our sin problem. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Now, not only do you believe that he existed, but do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Do you stake your whole eternity on what Jesus did 2,000 years ago? I do. My whole hope of eternity is not in the fact that I'm a pastor. In fact, I know that I have more that I'm accountable for as a pastor. My whole hope of eternity 
rests upon what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. That 2,000 years ago, he took a sinner's death that he didn't deserve. He bore it in full, and I believe that that was my death. That was the death of all who would ever believe in him. He paid the cost in full. And so when I think of heaven, if somebody said to you, Alex, how sure are you that you're going to heaven? I could say 100%. You might say, that's kind of arrogant of you. Think you're so good that you're going to heaven. I would say, actually, it's nothing about me. I am certain I'm going to heaven because I do not believe Jesus can possibly lie. And I've put my faith in him. And I don't think he would abandon any of his children. And so my certainty of heaven is not because I've been a good person. It's the exact opposite. It's because I've been so hopelessly worthless that apart from the work of Jesus Christ, hell would be my only eternal destiny. But I look to Jesus and he will not let me go and nothing can pluck me out of his hand. Isn't that awesome? I mean, you can even say amen out loud to that. Y'all know Ron's not the only person allowed to say amen in this church, right? I love that he does. It means a lot as a pastor when you get some amens, but everybody's allowed to do that. That's a good thing to say amen to. Third, do you resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ? In other words, what you're saying is Jesus Christ has put his name upon me. I'm a Christian. He's given me his name, and I want to carry that name well. Now, I'm not going to carry it perfectly, but I want to carry it well. My grandfather, um, John, you might have, did you ever know my grandfather? Yeah, Uh, you were probably the only one in here that did. Uh, My grandfather died when I was six years old. Um, He owned a furniture store in Beaufort, Uh, and it was called Mark Furniture, so it had his name on it. It was downtown where Old Bull Tavern is now, if you know that. He had a couple locations through the years. But he had that uh, store downtown called Mark Furniture, and he sold it at one point. He was ready to get out of the furniture business. He sold it to some people. Um, not a lot of details in the contract, and one of the things was they kept the name, but they did business very, very differently than he was doing it. And his name, even though he was completely unassociated with the store, his name began to be criticized in town because of the way they were doing business. It was different than he had done business. So he actually liquidated a bunch of property and sold, he had to buy the business back much more than he sold it for because he did not want his name attached to something that was so different than his own character. God puts his name upon us. When we are called Christian, Christ is saying, these are my people. I've put my name upon them. I've stamped my name upon them. And so with this third vow, you're saying, it's my desire to live my life in a way that reflects the name that I bear, the name of Jesus Christ. Fourth, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Oftentimes we approach church as consumers. What's in it for me? But actually, this vow is saying, you, by joining this church, you devote yourself to making the church stronger, to making the church better. And a lot of times, in fact, if you're a humble person, your response is going to be, what what do I really have to offer? How can I really make the church better? Um, Jammed my finger yesterday. 
fingers, you know, what, this isn't a real big deal, is it? This one finger. And everything, I can't even type with anymore with this thing. It hurts so bad. Uh, it, it's so wonky right now. We can often think we are unimportant parts of the body. But if God has added you to the church, then he has made you a vital part for the worship and work of the church. And it's also why we value presence in the life of the church. We, uh, at times, this hasn't happened in a while, but uh, several years back, we had folks that they wanted their name off of the role of another church in the community. They, they didn't like what that church was teaching. So they wanted their name off the membership roles, and so they wanted to transfer here. They did not have any intention of actually attending. And so we said, uh, you can't keep this membership vow to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability if you have no intention of coming. Now, we know we have members that are providentially hindered, that are in nursing homes or assisted living places, and, and, and they cannot physically be with us. We're, they're not in violation of these vows. But if somebody says, I want to join this church, but I don't have any intention of really being active in the life of the church, then you really ought not take those vows because vows are oaths before God taken in the presence of God and of witnesses. So promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. We will talk in later classes about how you figure out where you fit in and how you serve the church. Then fifth, Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Now, those two, there's two super unpopular words in that, in that first part of that vow. Church government, people are not fans of church government. Nobody gets excited and says, yes, pastor's preaching on church government today. Now, I actually think we should because it's one of the ways that God grows us in discipleship through godly church government. Um, but nobody gets real excited about church politics, church government. And then the other is discipline. Nobody gets excited about church discipline. Yes, the pastor is preaching on Matthew 18 today. I get to learn about church accountability and what it is to, uh, to be called, into, uh, called to account for my sins. Uh, we're going to spend a whole class period talking about church discipline at First Scots. But what you're saying with that fifth vow is I submit myself to the way God has built this church, that there are elders and they are, are the spiritual shepherds of the church. And I'm not here to create dissension and division and go behind their backs to do things, but I submit myself to their leadership and promise to study the purity and peace of the church. In other words, I'm going to increase. I'm going to help the purity and peace of the church grow. So I'm not going to be creating divisions. We have been very, very careful through the years to be a church that does not allow secondary issues to divide. So we don't want to be the church that's all about homeschool or the church that's all about Christian school or the church that's all about public school. Um, We don't want to be the church that... uh, allows secondary things. Uh, And that can be, we we don't, you know, obviously politics exist. We all have political views. You won't hear me preaching on politics from the pulpit, American governmental politics from the pulpit. I'm going to preach on morality that ought to shape how you view politics and how you participate in the political system. But there'll never be a point where I'm going to say you have to vote Republican or you have to vote Democrat or you have to vote this candidate. You have to vote that candidate. We were very careful through COVID not to um, make vaccine issue a divisive issue. We left it to a matter of conscience for people because those are great ways to divide the church. When we are divisive, when we create dissension in the church, we're breaking our fifth membership vow. More than that, we're actually doing something that God in Proverbs tells us that he hates. 
to be clear, there are times where if a church is in error, you do have to address it. If you, if you heard me say something that, let's use Steve, he's an easy example. You heard Steve say something. <laughs> no, uh, you heard one of us say something and you thought, I, I, can't, I can't justify that biblically or I can't support that biblically. The first thing would be for you to come to us individually and say, hey, can you help me understand what you meant when you said such and such? You know, 50% of the time, either you misheard or we misspoke. That's, that's probably maybe more than 50%. Um, but maybe we explain what our view is and you say, I, I can't get there biblically. And what I would say to you is, well, why don't you, uh, if, since you and I can't get on the same page about this and I'll try to support my view biblically and you've supported your view biblically, um, if you are not satisfied with that, why don't you talk to the elders about it? Come to the session, talk to them about what your concern is, uh, and then let's go from there. If you come to the elders and you've stated your case and the elders have said, here is why we cannot agree with the position that you've, uh, that you've stated, you can go to the next level, which is presbytery. Um, and we'll talk about what presbytery means. But there may be a point where you have to say, okay, I don't believe that this is something that they are going to change. So my options are either to say, okay, I can continue to worship here uh, and just understand that we're different on this issue, or perhaps I do have to distance myself and find a different church. That is how a lot of people have ended up with us, as they were in churches that could not substantiate what they were doing biblically. And so those people had to go through the heartbreaking process of leaving the churches that they've invested in, sometimes for generations, parents and grandparents invested in those churches, having to leave them, and they've come to us. That, that's, so we understand there is a time where sometimes you have to say, this is not something I can support. You know that's not the vast majority of problems. The vast majority of problems that create division in churches really are matters of preference, aren't they? Carpet color. You ever seen a church divide over carpet color? I mean, there was a church in Florida that divided whether to use Florida Seminoles um, colors or Florida, Gator, Florida State Seminoles or Florida Gators colors. Well, the good thing is all the South Carolina teams are so bad right now, none of us are going to be fighting over Clemson or Carolina. All right. But really, most of the time when there are divisions in churches, it's over matters of preference. If you're ever in that place, read Philippians 2. Count one another more important than yourselves. Well, how do I do that? Follow the model of Jesus Christ. Those are the vows you would take from membership. You would take them in the presence of the whole church family. Those of you who are nervous about speaking in front of people, it would be, your words would be limited to yes, yes, all right? So you, I, we're not asking you to stand up and recite your entire personal history. Um, but you would take the vows of membership. I would say, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope, except for his sovereign mercy? You would say yes. All right. You can join the church either by profession of faith. That would mean you have not been a Christian in the, in the past. You've never been baptized. Uh, you're a new believer. So exciting when the Lord adds people to his church uh, who were not once walking with Christ. You can join the church by transfer of letter. So maybe you're a member in good standing of a church. What we would do at that point is contact that church and say, uh, Ron's been worshiping with us now for a while. We thank you for the investment you have made in him for the last 80 or 90 years. Um, but he's going to be coming to us. Uh, I'm sorry. I love you. 
I know, what a jerk I am. Um, But he's been worshiping with us, and we ask that you transfer his spiritual care to us. Um, So that's transfer of letter. Some, and this is actually probably the most common way people come to us. We have been a church for people who maybe for a long time have been alienated from a church home, have not been members in a church in maybe 20 years or 50 years. They don't even know if they still are members somewhere. That's what we call reaffirmation of faith. So you have publicly uh, been received into a church before, but perhaps um, you, let, you, you were gone so long. Maybe you're, the church you grew up in doesn't even know how to contact you, so you're not sure if you're a member. So we would receive you at that point into, uh, into membership by reaffirmation of faith. Um, one caveat, uh, one question that we want to ask you in this process is, have you, um, are, are you under church discipline? at this point. Sometimes people will seek to transfer churches to get out of church discipline issues. So there's a church that perhaps is confronting a sin issue, and a lot of times, maybe more often than not, people leave and find another church that doesn't know about it, and they transfer. We don't want to allow that to happen. We want to honor and respect your previous churches. And if there is a disciplinary situation going on, maybe even if you're justified in it, maybe you were not guilty of it all, we want to support that process playing out biblically rather than somebody just escaping discipline. Um, As you go through the class, we're going to be giving you things to think about and then to pray, is this the church home for me? Um, you can talk to me about that anytime, talk to Steve, talk to any of our elders. If you do believe this is the church home for you, then you would meet with me first. Um, if, if you're a woman, probably you'd meet with Stephanie and me and talk through your testimony. Just how did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, there's on page 15, there's some guidance for writing your testimony. That's not a path you have to follow. But for those of you that are just not sure where to start, that gives you some thoughts on when did you, you know, what's your church experience? When did you really start to think about your need of a savior? What does it mean to be a Christian? How are you growing? Those sort of things. Um, You and I would talk through your testimony. And then the next thing would be for you to meet with the elders of the church. Um, That sounds far more intimidating than it is. These are some of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. And so as intimidating as that sounds to sit down with those men, their desire really is simply to hear the work that Jesus is doing in your heart. It's not to keep people out by any stretch, but to welcome sincere believers into the life of the church. And so it's not anything you need to be nervous about. Uh, During that time, you can ask them anything you want to as well. Um, they'll ask you how you want to serve here and things like that. So you'd meet, go, complete the class, meet with me, meet with the elders, uh, and assuming this is where the Lord's calling you, then you would take those vows of membership. So please stay in communication with me about that so that we can walk with you through that and pray for you, praying for all of you. We have no desire for anybody to be in a church to which the Lord is not calling them. Um, we want you to be exactly where the Lord wants you. And if that's here, praise God. If it's in another Bible-believing church, praise God. Do I think God is going to call you to an apostate church that isn't preaching the gospel? No, I don't. And I would strongly urge you against that. If you said, hey, I'm not going to join First Scots, but I'm going to this church down the road, I would plead with you for the good of your soul. Do not do that because you will not hear the ministry of the word there. Any questions before I move on? All right.
Um, look at page 16. Mission and vision. I part of me hates that terminology because it's really borrowed from the business world. Uh, but I want to concisely give you what we believe our mission is, what God has commissioned us to do, and then how we aim to accomplish that. And then in the next section, I'm going to put some uh, flesh on those bones. But the mission right there, just above the middle of, of page 16, the mission of First Scots of Beaufort is to glorify God by producing mature disciples of all ages who will reach Beaufort and then the world with the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. So we want to glorify God. And the way we want to do that is to produce mature disciples. We're a, a doctrinally we're a teaching heavy church. We acknowledge that. If you were to spend um, all week here, you'd have Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, Sunday evening worship. By the end of that day, you've gotten a solid three hours worth of biblical ministry. And then if you're a man, Tuesday, come for Bible study, you get an hour. Wednesday uh, morning, you've got women's Bible study, meets for an hour and a half. You've got Wednesday evening prayer meeting. We're teaching the Bible there. You've got Thursday evening uh, women's Bible study. Um, tons of opportunity because we want to present you mature. We want to present you. We want to give you everything you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And not only that, just as we've been saying in Jude, for you to be able to discern right from wrong, because the context in which you're going to spend the rest of your life is going to be a world that is seeking to attack and assault your faith. Uh, So we want to produce mature disciples who will then go out into the world to make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ in Beaufort and to the ends of the earth. Our vision for for how we want to accomplish that is to establish and maintain a culture in our congregation that's committed to reverent worship, sincere fellowship, robust family discipleship, personal piety, healthy marriages and families, all powered by humble passion for Christ. And we don't believe that your church life or your spiritual existence ought to be limited to a, an hour or two on Sunday. But your, the reality of your relationship with Christ, your walk with the Lord, your faith ought to impact seven days a week, 24 hours a day, every moment of your life. That's what we want to create is a people who are radically transformed by the gospel and then send those out into the world. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's that's who you are. That's what he's established you to be. A people who declare to the ends of the earth, starting with your neighborhoods, starting with your homes, your workplaces, your classrooms, who declare to the ends of the earth the glory of Jesus Christ. Look over with me at page 17. I gave this, for those of y'all that were here last week, I gave this as some assigned reading. Hopefully you were able to get to it. This is an article by a friend of this church called The Ordinary Means of Growth. And I think Dr. Duncan here, and he lays out for us as well as anything I've ever read outside of Scripture, just the simple work of the church. How do we grow disciples? How do we help people grow to maturity in the faith? And He writes all of this understanding that there are constant, there's a billion dollar industry about how to grow churches. Did y'all know that? There's a billion dollar industry starting really in the 50s. There became, 
it became the view that, that growing churches is a thing we do. And so we'll put together books. And if you do these, you know, these seven steps, you'll grow a healthy church. If you do this and this and this, you'll grow a healthy church. If you preach on these kinds of things, you'll grow a healthy church. There, you go to any Christian bookstore and you can find tons of those kind of books. They're all strategy centered. And guess what? They're all really man centered if you look at them. They're all about here's what you do in order to grow a healthy church. We actually really don't believe it has a whole lot to do with us at all, (laughs) to be really honest. There is no technique or strategy that we can come up with that's going to grow disciples the way that we want to. And so instead of us trying to be really creative and come up with something, we just look to what the scriptures say. What do the scriptures teach us about how to grow disciples? What do the scriptures teach us about what the work of the church is and how we equip the saints to do that work? Uh, so I, I, uh, Ligon says in this article, he says, there's really three ways churches approach this. He says, you know, some say, we've really got to change the message of the church. The gospel is so offensive do y'all think the gospel's offensive? Do y'all, do y'all agree with that, that the gospel's offensive? What's offensive about it? It calls everyone evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, there's that time Jesus said, you are of your father the devil, speaking to the Jews, and that may have had something to do with why he was crucified. But the gospel is incredibly offensive to our flesh, right? And so there has been a train of thought in Christianity that says we sort of need to soften the edges of the gospel. Let's not talk about things like sin and judgment and stuff like that. That's kind of, that's offensive. Nobody really wants to hear about that. And so how many of you have ever seen churches where you just cease to talk about those things because it might offend people? It's not the, it's not the kind of thing that polite people talk about. Have you ever seen churches that have abandoned that? So one thing churches do to try to grow is they abandon the gospel, or at least the offensive parts of the gospel. Now, once you abandon the rough edges of the gospel, you have something altogether different. Interestingly, what happens almost without fail is when a church begins to say, you know, we really need to stop being so offensive. We don't need to hit on these hard things like atonement and judgment and things like that. Uh, Let's just talk about being good neighbors and stuff. Almost without fail, what happens is that those churches' attendance will drop by 50% within a decade. I mean, it, it just crushes them because people are going, well, I can, I can just listen to Oprah or Ellen or whoever else it is on TV, and I can hear the exact same message. So why would I get up early on Sunday and go to church when I can just turn on the TV or read the newspaper or read some magazine and hear the same drivel? So one option is change the message. The second option, which has really been what's created a a peculiar evangelical culture in America, is to change the method. To say, you know, we don't want to, we're fine with the gospel, but, you know, the church just sort of needs to spice things up a little bit. Church is kind of boring, right? So let's change gears and not be so much about teaching and preaching and, and worship. Let's make it more about entertainment. Now, this is actually nothing new. Charles Spurgeon in the 1950, uh, 18, uh, middle of the 1800s um, was writing about clowns coming into the church to entertain people. And that's nothing new. You know, you look at these churches all over the place, these big tent evangelical churches with thousands of members. Much of what they are doing is purely about personal entertainment. It's not about you hearing the beauty of Christ or about your need of the Savior. It's about entertaining you into the kingdom. 
The hardest part about that is whatever you do to, ga- to gain people, you have to keep doing to keep people. So you always have to be cooler. You always have to be funnier. You always have to do, be more culturally relevant. It is exhausting to take that approach. I, I met with a group of pastors in our community uh, a couple of years ago, and the entire time was them just talking about demographics and strategies and the newest top 10 music and everything they had to try to be doing to be relevant to the culture today. I thought that is crushing to think that you have to be the one that, that attracts people. You have to be the one that grows people. So you've got people that say we need to change the message. Some say you've got to change the method. The argument Ligon's taking there and what we take as a church is we don't need to change either of those things. What we need to do is faithfully minister the gospel and let God do all the work. I mean, we're not Pollyanna-ish about that. We we want people to know we're here. We want people to, to be drawn in, but we want them to be drawn by the power of the word. We want them to be drawn by prayer. In other words, we believe this is God's work, not ours. And so there's no demographic study. There's no strategy that the elders and I will ever come up with that can be better than what God has presented to us in the scriptures. Look with me at Acts chapter 2 for a moment. And hopefully, hopefully you understand this. I don't say any of this to say we're right and all the other churches are wrong. (laughs) I say this to say I know that I have no capacity to draw people and change their hearts. And therefore, my only hope for that to happen is that God himself would do it through his word. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so in other words, preaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, That may mean communion, we're not sure, but certainly uh, another reference, it is communion, and the prayers. So what did the early church do? The word was ministered, they fellowshiped together, they gathered together in in worship and in fellowship. Uh, They took the sacraments together and they prayed. Nothing very novel there. Did it work? (laughs) Verse 43, Awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did it work? Was it because of the creativity and ingenuity of the church leaders that they were putting together this revolution where we're going to do something nobody's ever seen before? This is going to be amazing. We're going to have clowns. We're going to have a band, all of that. That's, that's really what local and modern churches are saying. Let's, let's come up with something people have never seen before. No, they said, we're going to focus on the ministry of the word as we gather together. We're going to have the sacraments and we are going to pray down heaven. Did God bless it? Certainly. Now read that passage again, and I want you to just scan it with your eyes. Is there an expiration date on that approach to ministry? 
This is going to work through December 30th or December 31st, 2020. After that, you're on your own. You've got to come up with a new plan. That seems to be what the American church has thought, that the simple ministry of the word, sacraments, and prayer are no longer enough. We, times have changed. We need to keep up with the ages. You see that nowhere in Scripture. When you see the church growing throughout Scripture, it's not because they're, they're, they have the best praise band in town. It's not because they have the, the funniest pastor. It's because of the power of the Word of God going forth and transforming the hearts of the people as God draws them to Himself. You know, you can attract people. We could put on a dog and pony show that would attract a thousand people. That's easy to do. But our desire is not numbers. Our desire is lasting transformation of mature disciples who can then go out into the world and proclaim the gospel, who can stand up, who can endure a world that is going to be absolutely bent against them. Um, Look with me at page 19. I think this is just one of the greatest summaries of ministry of anything I've ever read. And so this is why I I bring this out all the time, to remind myself and to remind our church family about this. Page 19, he he says, This means, among other things, that ministry is not rocket science. Gospel faithfulness doesn't require the minister to be a sociologist. In other words, I don't spend all my day looking at the world and saying, okay, what, how do people think today? What's popular today? How do I contextualize the gospel so that it appeals to the people today? He says, ministry is not determined in the first place by reading culture, but by reading the word of God. In other words, there's never, Lord willing, and, and as long as our current leadership is here, there's not going to be a point where you're going to hear somebody in the pulpit say, you know, we know that was true 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, people believed this, but times have changed. The culture has changed. That's not what they want to hear anymore. This is not about what people want to hear, but what God has commissioned us to say. The ordinary means, and, and ordinary means, it's a term, ordinary means of grace. It just means ministry of the word, sacraments, and prayer. The ordinary means minister wants to connect with the culture, but when it comes to determining method and priorities, he moves from text, the biblical text, to ministry, not culture to ministry. There is an impulse in churches today to produce what's really just called cool Christianity. It looks cool, it looks relevant, and it ultimately produces infantile disciples. Only the word can grow you in maturity. Um, Ligon says on the fourth line, he neither changes his message nor his methods based on the polling of the most recent focus group, um, though he strives to be fully cognizant of the obstacles and opportunities that his biblical message and methods face in his particular cultural context. In other words, we're aware. I'm aware of our community. I know some of the, the strengths and weaknesses and the idols of our community. He fully understands there's no such thing as an unsituated biblical ministry or an uncontextualized ministry. So he's just saying he understands he's in a place and time where he's got a minister, but his ministry must be faithful, not to what the world wants to hear, but to what the scriptures say. And so next paragraph. So he's constantly going back and asking, what are my marching orders? 
And when he remembers, it doesn't require a PhD in semiotics to interpret them. This is just really my job, my goal, my job description. Preach the word, love the people, pray down help, uh, heaven, disciple the elders, promote family religion, live a godly life. What are the church's marching orders? What's your job? Delight in the Lord's day, gathering with the saints to drink in the pure milk of the word every Sunday morning and evening. Don't just settle for Sunday morning worship. Pastor Walton preaches phenomenal sermons Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and most of you are settling for one meal when you could have two feasts. Um, as families, uh, excuse me, do that as families. Pray together as a congregation once every week. We do that on Wednesday evenings. We gather to pray down heaven. Worship and catechize at home in the families. Simply that means train your children in the faith. Love one another and all men. So that's what we desire. Here's what it will look like if this is what we accomplish. What will a church look like that is, uh, that is committed to the ordinary means of grace? It'll be characterized by love for expository biblical preaching. What's expository mean? Yeah, we do what's called consecutive expository preaching where we go verse by verse by verse. Expository preaching is just simply bringing out what is contained in the text. It's not what I want the text to say, but what the text does say and trying to help it connect with you and your life. Um, it'll be characterized by love for expository Bible preaching, passion for worship, delight in truth, embrace of the gospel, the Spirit's work of conversion, a life of godliness, robust family religion, biblical evangelism, biblical discipleship, biblical church membership, mutual accountability in the church, biblical church leadership, and a desire to be a blessing to the nations. Along with this all, there will be an unapologetic, humble, and joyful celebration of the transcendent sovereignty of the one true triune God in salvation and all things. If that sounds good to you, if that sounds, I mean, that'll make you say amen. If that sounds good to you, that's, that's kind of our manifesto here. That's what we desire to do. Do we do it? Not as well as we could. It's part of why we need you. <laughs> That's why we need the Lord to add to the number, the forces that is going out into the world with the gospel. But that is what we desire to do. If that is what is attractive to you, if that is what you believe God is calling you to be a part of, then it sounds like this is a good church home for you. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the jots and tittles of the church, what we believe about uh, predestination can be a hard one, and infant baptism, and the role of women in ministry. You know, all the easy stuff, right? We'll talk about those things as we go through the class. Um, but keep in mind the big picture of, is this what you believe the church is called to do? And if so, we want you to come alongside us and help us do it and do it better and better and better. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the church and how you have loved us so much that you have established a body, a family, um, one that certainly has caused no shortage of grief through the years in your own heart by its own foolishness and frailty and fragility over 2,000 years. And yet, Lord, you have promised, Jesus Christ has promised us that he will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, we don't have to be smarter than you 
to come up with some strategy or to change the message so that we can make the, the gospel palatable to the world. Instead, we do what you've called us to do, minister the word, um, partake of the sacraments, pray together. And then we watch you do the work, not only of maturing those who are here, but drawing others to yourself through it. Father, lead God and direct these folks as they're praying for, for your will for them for a church home. In Jesus' name, amen.